0: Do you love Making Movies is Hard and you want to listen to more episodes?
1: Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month.
0: That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please.
1: But without any more blibber blabber. Back
0: to the show! You know, Making Movies is Hard. Making Movies is Hard.
1: Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Passell, the founding host of the podcast. I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital and
0: DVD. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. And I'm currently in development on on more. And I want to shout out my top project is Best Friends Forever. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage the creative distribution initiative at Sundance, and I currently do sales. On this Thursday bonus episode, we're going to play the interview from episode 252 back in February 23rd 2020 i remember exactly where i was when we recorded this i was in a WeWork in century city anyway this interview is with actor <laughs> writer producer and friend of the show naomi McDougal jones naomi talks about acting in addition to writing and producing the difference between making her first and second features and what it was like to take a film from town to town rather than doing a traditional theatrical release through traditional conventional distributors After that, we just shout out really quickly. Naomi is the person that I talk about all the time. And what a good choice because she's also incredibly charismatic, multi-hybrid, just like Tate. And also just one of, I think, a really solid interview That it' nice to pull out of the vault. After the interview with Naomi, we play another round of You're the Expert. So stick around. But first... Before you do that, go to Patreon, patreon.com slash MMIH podcast to support the show. You know, we pull these episodes out of the vault, but there are like 300 more that are in the vault. And the only way you get to hear them is if you support us at 199 or more a month and that's so little that's so that's like one fourth of a chipotle burrito it's so little but without any further babble babble here's our throwback interview with naomi McDougal jones
1: This week, we're really excited to welcome actor, writer, producer, thought leader, Naomi McDougal-Jones to the show. Welcome, Naomi.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thanks for being on with us. You have a really beautiful bio here that I feel like I should read, but Liz, do you want to read it?
0: Well, I, I kind of... Well, should we just make Naomi do it? Like, yeah, Naomi. let's make Naomi oh, do it. I'll yeah. I'll yeah. summarize yourself.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you don't have to use that bio. You can just give your own bio, whatever you want.
2: So, basically, I... Make movies. I write them and I act in them and I produce them. I've made two feature films. The first one was Imagine I'm Beautiful, which came out in 2014. We made that one for $80,000 and got a theatrical and digital distribution deal and won a bunch of awards with that one. And then Bite Me came out in 2019 and... As we'll talk about, we decided to go rogue on the distribution end of that. We made it, we made the film for half a million, and then we decided to try creative distribution. Um, and so we released it this summer in a 51-screening, 40-city, three-month, joyful vampire tour of America, during which wow. myself, my husband, and a documentary filmmaker lived in an RV for three months and literally drove around the country Doing screenings of the film, wow, um, and joyful vampire balls. Um, in addition to my work as a filmmaker, I am a author and speaker and activist for trying to get more women into film, specifically behind the camera. I did a TED talk called "What It's Like to Be a Woman in Hollywood" that went viral in the middle of the Weinstein thing, and a million people watched it in three months or something insane. And that led to me getting a book deal. So I actually have a book coming out on February 4th about that, those same issues called The Wrong Kind of Woman Dismantling the Gods of Hollywood.
1: Wow. Amazing. When's the book going to come out?
2: February 4th, 2020.
1: Wow. Congratulations. It have been
2: the 8th because that is my son's birthday. Oh. But whatever. <laughs> you can get me. it for him for his birthday so that he can become a good feminist film boy early on. I mean, I have very low <laughs> expectations
0: for myself. Son. like if I, had a, if I had a daughter i always say this if i had a daughter i'd be like be president and like now that i have a son i'm like don't rape anyone <laughs> um so i maybe i would like him to read your book yes of course great okay
1: i have so many questions and I, I think there's like so many different ways to to start this conversation liz do you have a preference or can we just jump off into any direction we well, want
0: you know all i want to talk about is distribution so i'm gonna let you ask your like <laughs> important formation questions that i know well, you have
1: this is a really uneducated question because i didn't like watch the TED talk but I can imagine what it's about based off the subject banner and sure. the time it came out but I'm I'm just wondering like since then have you noticed any change in the industry like a positive change or has it yeah. s- sort of more of the same but that we're just saying all these nice things on the surface that look good
2: So this is a really tricky question, because it's important to acknowledge the change that has happened, while also really keeping everybody's eye on the fact that it has not been as substantial as it needs to be to actually get to parity or anything approaching parity. So I think the best way to think about it is that the biggest strides we've seen have been in on-screen representation. So we have seen real moves in terms of having more women on screen, more people of color in important roles. That has been real. The problem is that the numbers behind the screen in terms of writing and producing and directing have not moved. And actually in 2018, the percentage of female directors of studio films went down to 4% <laughs> from oh, its, really? from its stunning 5% the year before. So, <laughs> so I think, I think <laughs> the best way to summarize it is to say that the white men in charge have sort of come around to the idea that maybe they have to tell other people's stories, but they have not yet made the leap to imagining that other people could tell their sto- their own stories and that's a really big problem and to me I get a little nervous about this sort of progress because I think people have this feeling, because they're seeing more women and people of color on screen, they feel like we've made real progress. But if you really get down to the nut of the issue, it's that our entire global perspective through cinema and television has been shaped Through solely the white male lens, almost exclusively since about 1945, and that's the problem. The problem is. Wait, not
1: earlier than 1945? No. So at the beginning of at (laughs) the beginning
2: of the film industry, women there were we there were a huge number of women writing films, directing films, running studios because it was sort of considered a slightly eccentric hobby at that time, and Uh, nobody really thought that there was any real money to be made. A lot of the men were away fighting the First World War. It was sort of like, well, whatever. And then talkies came around and Wall Street went, oh, wait a minute, this is actually going to be an industry. Uh. And and there are memos from the time that you can read where Wall Street basically said, uh, we'll invest in this industry, but you have to get the women out because they don't know how to run business. And and also women had started making pretty radical movies at that time about feminism and cross dressing and lesbianism and bisexuality and... Abortion and like really pretty radical films for that time and and also you can see memos where they where there's the guys are saying like this is going to be a problem in society if these films keep getting around like there will be riots in the streets women are going to start getting all sorts of ideas <laughs> in their heads wow and so you can literally see that by by 1945 one half of one percent of films and television were being directed by women and that stayed the same until about 1979
1: wow. It's interesting because from my perspective, just like watching movies like on Netflix or whatever, or even in the theater, like I I, I tend to see more female names in in the directing and the producing and and the writing of films. But I don't know if it's actually because there are more of them because, well, you're telling me there aren't, but but it might just be because, you know, maybe I'm being more aware. I don't know
2: or maybe um, you are you are self selecting those films more often so it's it's a little bit better in the indie, indie film space um, with films but with okay. budgets between 1 and Fifteen million. Oh, uh, uh, okay. Twelve percent of those films are directed by women, which is still horrendous, given that we're fifty percent of the population. And then in micro-budget space, so under five hundred thousand dollars, it's eighteen percent of films are directed by women. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Well, not Yay. me directing, but but yeah. my films have had female directors.
1: Interesting. So so as you get lower budgets the percentages grow basically grow a
2: little bit but when you look at the fact that film school graduates are 50% female at this point that's still pretty shocking so actually mm. the largest drop off is happening between film school and ever making their first even micro budget film
1: How long has the, the been 50% coming out of film school like of women is that been for a long time or is that like kind of a newer
2: statistic? I'm not exactly sure how many years. It's it's newer for sure, but it's not it's not like it happened this year. Like definitely right. for a good chunk of years that's the, been. The happening. last like
1: five, ten years, maybe. Something, or something like that. Yeah. Well, I'm just wondering that if maybe we'll start to see more and more female filmmakers coming out based off of those numbers, because I bet twenty years ago it wasn't that many.
2: But there were still a lot. So uh, okay. This is so one of the most dangerous ideas here is that is that we're just on an incremental progress slope and that if we do nothing this will just sort of incrementally keep getting better and better and then and that's actually not true.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. In
2: in the the late 70s and early 80s, there was a there was a lawsuit against the studios for hiring discrimination. And that was when the number went up from that one half of 1%. And it went up briefly to about 8% for films and 16% for television shows. And everybody then, you know, it was sort of a moment like this where everyone was like, This is so awesome. We've had this conversation. Now they realize this is going to keep getting better. And what happened is everybody took their, eye, their hands off the wheel because they decided right. it was just going to keep getting better. And the numbers began backsliding so that by the 2000s, it was down to about 5% where it stayed ever since. But Naomi, you're working
0: to make this better with a few things that you're doing.
2: Yes. <laughs> well, certainly the book is a big one of those things. I think this is still a conversation that is largely unknown in the broader public. I think it's, it's something that Sort of people in the industry are aware of, although they may not be aware of the numbers or the history of it. But so I do think to a certain extent this is an education campaign that has to happen in terms of letting audiences know that this is happening and sort of, and people within the industry and building up a critical mass of outrage about this that the studios will be forced to make changes. People in power don't tend to just give up power, <laughs> they tend to have to be forced to give up power. And uh, another thing I've been working on for the last three years is called the Fifty One Fund, which will be a f- private equity fund to finance films by female directors, because funding is is definitely a big place where women get stuck more than men.
0: Can I say something controversial that I might regret later? Yeah.
1: Uh, oh boy. Um. <laughs>
0: I've never wanted to direct a Marvel movie. I mean, obviously, the paycheck is would be, like, so wonderful and statistically, like, to improve women's chances and women's opportunities to contribute to a massive box office, sure. But in terms of storytelling, I've never really wanted to direct, a, like, a massive studio film. Yeah. And I guess I would love to hear your perspective on, like, is that dangerous? Is that perspective dangerous? Should we all be trying to make these major changes and massive economic plays Or is it about the small changes in indie film? Or obviously it's everything. But I'd love to hear what you you think. Yeah,
2: I think the important thing is to work on all fronts. I don't think every woman has to wish to direct Marvel movies. I don't think if you asked Wes Anderson, he probably would say the same thing that you just said. Is like, that is not his bag. But the bottom line is there are certainly women and a lot of women who would love to direct Marvel movies and maybe would not like to direct smaller indie films. So I think, no, I I don't think, I think you should make the work you want to make, but I think the critical thing is that we keep pushing for it on all fronts and also keep talking about how systemic oppression works. Because one of the things, when I set out to write this book and I conducted over a hundred hours of interviews of people up and down the food chain inside and outside of the studio system, men and women, both, and also did you know extensive research into scholarly papers and did statistics and the whole, I like looked at the whole thing. And what I really hoped would come out of that would be a couple of key choke points that are happening for women and people of color and all other people who have been excluded. And I would be able to say, okay, look, if we just fix these three things, this will get better. And what happened was not that at all. What, what, what emerged was a picture of understanding that we're bleeding women out more than we're crushing them in this industry. And it's it's sort of d- the death by a thousand cuts over the course of their careers that just is adding up to these statistics. What um, do you so mean by bleeding? That it's not like we can just say, okay, they're having problems with financing. They're having problems getting hired for studio jobs. It's like everything that happens to them from the day they enter film school is adding up to their absence in these key powerful roles. I actually have one entire chapter in the book that's about 30 pages where I go through in detail a woman's career and talk about everything that happens to her that doesn't happen to her male peers. Um, And one of them, just to use an example, like in film school, before you go to film school, you get sent a list of 100 films that you have to watch before you can enter film school. (laughs) And they are overwhelmingly films by white men and so right. so many of the the female filmmakers i talked to were watching these films the summer before film school and just becoming already deflated, feeling like these films don't speak to me. Like I don't, and yeah. I don't belong there. Like there's, there's nothing here that's for me, that's from me. And it just kind of goes on from there. What film school is this?
1: All well, of I them. Well, I mean, well, like,
2: <laughs> oh, like, film, like, like I,
1: but a good example is like what taxi driver. That's like a classic that everyone watches in film school. And that's a really good example of like a very male dominated movie that I think if I were a woman, I'd probably be like, what the hell?
2: <laughs> right, And it's not like no women like Taxi Driver or no women like Quentin Tarantino films. But, they're, but the reality is that those films are heavily slanted towards the male perspective. And so it's very easy as a woman. And a lot of the women then spoke about getting to film school and, and like kind of secretly being like, you know, I really didn't like get I don't get what Tarantino is about or like I don't. And and then being called like the greatest Philistine for not like what do you mean you don't like Tarantino? He's like God, you know, and whatever. And so like this this idea begins getting reinforced from the first day that your perspectives are not as valid.
1: Yeah. Well, it's an interesting problem because like we said earlier, like most movies in the history of film are written and directed and starring white males. Yeah. Right. Like, so that's kind of a big problem to work around. Right. (laughs) The majority of movies are from that that perspective. It's like, how do you encourage a filmmaker who is not a white male to become engaged?
2: Well, and and, I mean, certainly from the film school's perspective, they could do a much better job of curating those lists because although there haven't been as many by a long shot, there certainly are great films. There have been great female filmmakers and filmmakers of color that they could put on there.
1: Well, next to Taxi Driver, you're also probably watching Do the Right Thing, you know, in film school, which I watched in film school. So that's like a good example of one that's not from the white male gaze, you know. It's not, I would say.
2: And and that's a great and it's a great film. But I would say that film it's is also not very, so super great for women.
1: <laughs> no, it's not great but, for women. That's for, that's
2: for yeah. sure. <laughs> but but a, but at least good in that we've broken out of the white male case.
1: So what? So what? Give, give me a few examples of classic films that are good for women that you feel like you know film school should be programming in their curriculums.
2: Well, I think certainly you could draw from the work of. Jane Campion. They don't like this game. <laughs> <laughs> we got this. We could do this. Nicole yeah. Hall of Center. Lynn yeah. Shelton.
0: And now um, I'm just dipping into white women. Well, so let's ju- go ju- right. ju- <laughs> Julie Dash
2: for sure. Julie Dash's work should be taught. Alongside Tarantino and everybody else. Penelope Spheres, Kimberly Lena Bork- Pierce. Wheeler. Yes. Um, I remember I had this conversation
0: with a friend of mine and it was like BFI came out with their list of like best movies of the century or something. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, there's no women in this. And yeah. he was like, Well, I mean, do you really think that women have directed movies are as good as the ones on this list? And this <laughs> is like This is like my feminist male friend who said that. And I was like, you know, you got to forget about the power of publicity and the power of the Oscars, the power of stars. Quality is subjective. And what do you say? Like that there's no way a woman can make a film this good. It was a very odd thing for him to say.
2: Well, and part of the problem is that because our entire conscious history of of the film industry has been white male films we have to shift our entire language to begin to imagine that anything else to adjust whatever our definition of great even is it's because it's probably different. It's not, all right, our value systems have also been built by the white male gaze. You know, the fact that there, uh, Lily Lufbrow wrote this incredible essay about the male glance, which is, is sort of her update on the male gaze argument. So her argument is that now oftentimes the male Gaze is less obvious, but it's almost worse because it's those stories don't even matter. It's, it's writing all women's films off as chick flicks. Right. It's like it, it's it's just sort of taking women's stories and and writing them off without even considering that they could be just as important and universal as male stories. So I think that's the problem is you have to foundationally restructure how you think about what a great film is. Well, do
0: you, I don't want to, this is a very important conversation, but we're never going to solve this yeah. in the next 20 <laughs> minutes. And I want right. to, I know that a big thing that we talk about on the podcast is like putting together the first feature. And I know yeah. all Rick has tons of questions about this too. So yeah. um, was your first film, Imagine Beautiful, a Beautiful, a comment on this or what was the origin?
2: Well, No, the origin was that I was an actress, and I had gone to acting school. And after about three years of auditioning and acting in a lot of films and plays, mostly under the radar stuff, I just had this moment where I realized that the parts I was auditioning for were horrible. (laughs) And... That that were available to me and my female colleagues were just. Call girl number five did not offer the gravitas (laughs) you were hoping for. Call girl number five, nude corpse number seven, the really supportive girlfriend who nods and smiles a lot. You know, just like. And and I I remember having this day where I was at an audition with like 300 other incredibly talented and beautiful women. And we were auditioning for—I don't even remember what the part was—but I just had this moment where I was like, "This is dumb. Like, this is not. We should not be be in such steep competition for each other to play this part." And so, basically, I got frustrated, and with a with a friend from film school, Caitlin Gold, we just decided that we could make a feature. And, and at that point, we'd acted on enough other people's film sets who were. Very disorganized and not very talented that we were like, well, this we can definitely do this. This this has to be possible. So we just basically started having film school by coffee date and like literally looking up any film producers we could find on the Internet and cold emailing them. And asking them if they'd meet with us. Um, and enough did that we sort of figured out how to make a movie. And we raised $80,000, 30000 of that through crowdfunding, and then the rest through very small investments. And, and it was actually through that film that I became aware of the women in film issue because I really wasn't before that. But we had, it, we had oh, accidentally hired an all-female creative team. Not realizing that that was a radical feminist act, and were quickly informed that it was so.
1: Who who informed you that it was so?
2: We had a just basically most of the people we met with, we'd have some variation on the converse of the conversation. Well, girls, you know that you're going to need to get a male producer on board at some point, just so that people will trust you with their money. Someone
1: literally said that. Literally said that
2: out loud in a meeting. Like,
1: wow, that's insane. Obviously,
2: this was in 2012, right? Not like 1950.
1: It was, yeah, this is a 1932 or something. Geez.
2: And then just wow. sort of this constant refrain of people don't want to see films about women. We I can't tell you how many times we got told that. And like, you know, maybe if you could add a lesbian angle or you could add a little blood, we could sell this, but nobody's going to want to watch a film about two women interacting with each other. I'm just wow. smirking. That's I, I wasn't talking because I was smirking.
1: It's not so you still hear that these days. It's like, you know, you figure that it had kind of limited perspective would have died out by now. You you would think... Because that's obviously not the case.
2: Right. Women are 51% <laughs> of the population and they buy 52% of movie tickets. Right. Like, clearly that is a stupid idea. But it's, yeah, it, but that uh, is the foundation that a lot of decisions are still made on. Well, right. you made the film and you had a theatrical for
0: it. What was your experience? What, what, oh, oh, before, all right, you had wait, questions wait, before. I'm <laughs> well, I'm just,
1: you, you just want to get to the distribu- distribution.
0: <laughs> I had a of tea, you guys. I'm so sorry.
1: <laughs> I just want to know, did you actually have to end up, did you take that terrible advice? Like, did you Get a male no, producer. we did not. and oh, okay. and we
2: somehow managed not to spend all the money at the mall.
1: Oh, how did you do that? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just
2: kidding.
1: Yeah. Um. So. Okay, so how did you raise the 50000 or so that wasn't crowdfunding? Was that just through people that you do personally or did you have to go seek out those people? Like, how did that happen?
2: It was really hard. We, there I think we it took us...
1: <laughs> That's the right answer.
2: Right. <laughs> oh, I man. think it took us about a year and a half to raise that money, which I know in the film world isn't very long, but it felt very long to us. <laughs> and yeah. um, I mean, we literally asked Anybody we'd ever met by the time we raised the money. So, yeah. and, and it was, I don't think one investor invested 20,000 eventually, although she started with five and sort of over the course of the film decided to invest more and more, but other than her, no single investor invested more than 5,000. And I think our smallest investment was a thousand. So it like, we really cobbled it together as we Nice, could.
1: Awesome. Okay. Liz, you go.
0: Well, I guess it's the idea of theatrical. I mean, we could, again, we could spend like five podcasts on theatrical, but in 20, did, did you release in 2012 or did you release in 2013, 2014?
2: 2014. So we, we made the film in 2013 and it came out in 2014.
0: Okay. So in 2014, what kind of theatrical deal did you do? How many markets and,
2: and were you happy? Did you feel like people attended those screenings? So we, I mean, I, I want to set the framework here that we were a, Very low budget film with no known actors whatsoever. Nobody knew who we were on the creative side. Like this was a very scrappy underdog film. And it was not only was it about two women, but it was it was a very intense psychological sort of twisty house of cards. Not a not a light Popcorn movie. So we knew we had a we knew we had a hurdle there to begin with. We actually didn't never expected to get a distribution deal for it at all. And then we we played. But what we did is when we played festivals, we knew, we somehow understood that we that we were responsible to hustle to fill those seats and so we really did. We, we reached out to a lot of local mental health organizations, any place we went and asked them if they would send people who were interested. My character has borderline personality disorder in that film. So specifically, we'd reach out to borderline groups, family members, support groups. We, I hired people to stand at the door outside every screening and collect email addresses of every person who left the theater. I mean, we, we really hustled our marketing game. And so the, the screening that the distributor came to was full of people and and this distributor had actually already passed on the film. I think he had forgotten this, but he had he had watched a screener before and passed on it, but we had somehow managed to get him to come as sort of a personal favor to somebody else to the screening and we had it full and the first thing that happened when the film ended was that this man stood up with tears streaming down his face and he said, "I have a daughter with borderline personality disorder." And you taught me something about my daughter with this film. I've never considered her perspective in this before. And the Aww. the Q and A sort of like went on like that. It was this incredibly emotional and beautiful thing. And so I think the distributor was like, "Oh shit! Like this this film. You know, we can make some money here." So uh, so wow. we got we got picked up by Candy Factory Films, which was a brand new. I think we were their second title boutique distribution company. And I think. They tried really hard, and they were very—they were always honest with us. And I—I want to say that because that is not the case with most distribution companies. They always sent us reports on time. They always sent us checks on time. They were very communicative. So, so in in terms of distribution companies at that level, they were great. But I came to understand the. The deal with most distribution companies, which is that they take a percentage and you do most of the real marketing work. So we we released in 10 cities. We played a week in LA and Toronto and everything else was one night event screenings. And we were simultaneously available on iTunes, Amazon and Google Play. And I mean it was great. You did a day and date, but you did a without D&D. a New York
0: theatrical. Is yes. The, okay. And was there a reason? I mean, you're from New York. Is there a reason you guys? Was it just the expense? Or? Yeah,
2: the theaters were just too expensive. We just couldn't. I think in retrospect, we probably should have, but we didn't because we felt like the theaters were too. You're expensive.
0: You're doing okay. I think <laughs> you made the right decision.
2: <laughs> I mean, whatever. You know, you you live and learn. But yeah, I mean, I think the the great thing was that we learned so much in that experience, and. and you know, as filmmakers and as first time filmmakers, it was an incredibly great experience from an emotional perspective, like, you know, we got to travel to all these places and talk to people and people came to see our movie and the the response was incredible and all this stuff. Um, But from a financial perspective, I think we've received back to date about $5,000. And that's
0: not profit. That's just revenue minus the marketing expenses, the cost to
2: travel, you know, everything like that. Is that true? Right, so the, so five thousand dollars back to our film from the distribution company,
1: and and no deal up front, right? It was and no deal not, up front, okay.
2: Which is reasonable for a film like that, right? Um,
1: right, of course, but.
2: Well, and the, then the other thing that happened is a year ago that company folded, and as happens all of the time, sold to another company. And we have not received a single check or report from that company in a year. No matter, I mean, we've had a lawyer contact them. We have we have bugged them constantly. What's that company's name, Naomi? <sighs> Should I say yes?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, we're trying to out these
0: companies. It's, it's
2: Screen Media. Oh, I'm just googling like mad, and screen media. Um, you're, and you're on so, notice. I'm so <laughs> pissed, and I I don't know what to do. And so, and and the film is still up on platform, so some, that like there is revenue coming in. People tell me they're watching the movie, and yeah. I don't know where it's going.
1: Wow, and, and and where is it again? It's on Amazon. Is it on Amazon Prime? Or? At the moment,
2: it's on Amazon Prime. Oh, and that was the other thing is it came off the other platforms in that transfer. And I was like, guys, I've got my second film coming out. Well, first I was like, my TED talk is going viral and my second book is coming out. Like you might want to get this onto the platforms because people are going to be paying attention and just nothing. Crazy, crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. Um, we're going to start a letter writing campaign. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> I am really Yeah, <No>, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've thought like, what if I just called them every single day until they responded to me and gave me a check? But like, I don't know. It's, it's a fine line between getting justice and going insane.
1: I think once a week is a is a good amount or once a yeah. month, maybe just <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hounding people, you know, eventually they're going to have to, you know, say something to get you to go away, you know? Yeah. All right. So you make this movie, it comes out, it's got a di- got distribution. I don't know if you're feeling great about that or if you're feeling okay about it, but how do you go ahead and get this, the second movie bite me going?
2: We were feeling like Cinderella, like this felt like the greatest possible win nice. for a film of that size. Right. Because awesome.
1: I'm glad that you felt that way. Cause some people are really down on their movies and it's, it's no. Getting and I, mean, I mean,
2: and I have to say with both of my films from a creative perspective, we have made exactly the film I wanted to make, which is not how you always feel. And that's been, so, so I feel like that is great always because I'm at least like, well, we did what, what I, we made the film I wanted to make, but yeah, I mean like, we, we won 12 awards on the festival circuit. We won four best pictures. We got a theater. Like it was just, it all of those things outpaced what our expectations were for the film. So then we were like, awesome. <laughs> now we're going to turn around and make the second feature and it's going to be way easier and, or at least a little bit easier. And uh, pretty quickly on the heels of Imagine I'm Beautiful, I got a manager, who, which I hadn't had before. And then she got that film and my new script, which I had ready when that film came out, which was very important, she got both of those things to Jack Letchner, who produced Blue Valentine and The Fog of War, and oh, in nice. um, his studio days did uh, Goodwill Hunting and Four Weddings and a Funeral, <laughs> like Cider House Rules, like in- insane. And so, he- and he said, "I want to be a producer on by me," and that just seemed like okay, like this is going to happen.
1: Wow. Now nice
2: and then it took us three years to get bite me made to get to set so here's
1: the the million dollar question or the half a million dollar (laughs) question really is how do you go from raising fifty thousand dollars in a year and a half to raising half a million dollars in like you said what three years three
2: years are you saying that that's impressive or unimpressive? <laughs> very I think it's impressive. very impre- okay. <laughs> okay. impressive. Okay, extremely
1: impressive. And I'm just wondering how do you pull that off? And is that you know largely due to your producer? or Was that you hustling again? Like how did that happen?
2: Um, so it was primarily me. Some of our other producers did bring in some money, but but I did the bulk of the fundraising again.
1: Wait, wait, wait. So Jack, it wasn't like Jack signs on the movie and he's like, "Okay, here's a half a million dollars, no. kid. Go make a movie." No. That's not how it works. Unfortunately, okay.
2: not. Um, but he but he is great as a, in every other way. I will say that I could not have raised half a million dollars without the first film. That's for sure. Because in hindsight, it's kind of amazing that anybody gave us any money for that first film, given that there was actually no reason to believe that we could make a movie other than we thought we could. Like, none of us had, nobody on the team had been to film school. We had one producer who had before made a feature film. We didn't even know enough to know that we should have made a short film to demonstrate. Like, we just... We were just like, no, no, we can definitely do this. And enough people believed us that we managed to do it. But in hindsight, that's a little bit insane. So so I think once we had this film that had gotten this distribution deal that had won all these awards, people began to take us more seriously, for sure. Also, Bite Me is a much... It sounds like a much more marketable idea, and I think it is a much more marketable film. It's a it's a subversive romantic comedy about a real life vampire and the IRS agent who audits her.
1: It's also a very different look at vampires than what you normally see. Yes, just based off the trailer, which yes. I really appreciated and makes me want to see the movie. You know, it's because like, oh, I haven't seen this type of a vampire before. That's like not super melodramatic and yeah. over the top and gothic. And, yeah, you know, is but they, I mean, I guess they're gothic, but not to that extent.
2: Right. Right. So, I, so we figure, you know, it's a romantic comedy. You've, you've got the vampire angle. It's a, it's, it's a comedy. It's not a drama. It seemed like, okay, this was going to be an easier thing to sell. And we, but, but it was, it was really difficult again. So we raised the money this time from twenty. 20- different investors. Obviously, they were coming in with bigger chunks this time because we had to raise more. I will say that despite the fact that we didn't make the money back on the first film, every investor from Imagine i Beautiful invested again in Bite Me, which... Oh, wow. That's amazing. I'm pretty proud of and I feel like is a result of the fact that we were really honest with them always. And I sent them... Monthly video updates every month through the whole thing.
1: Oh, really? Video updates of you just talking to them, talking about them how-
2: exactly what was going oh, wow. on. We were always wow. honest with them. So I think, I think they understood how hard we had worked and and sort of like enjoyed. I think they got enough out of coming on that journey with us. Like they saw they saw how that where that film sort of couldn't break out of a certain level, but they believed in us enough. Thank God to, to come back. And then, of course, we had to find additional investors, which was just that game of getting a lot of no's and finally getting some yeses.
1: And, and how do you what's your strategy for approaching those people? Are these people that you're meeting, you know, through the release of, of your first film or how, how are these people coming into your life? Basically,
2: I employ people sort of a take no prisoners approach to fundraising (laughs) in the sense that when I am looking to raise money for a film, I basically have that radar on all the time. And I, I equate it a little bit to when you're looking to date, that there's just a different radar that you have on in every situation where you're sort of like aware of whether or not somebody might be a prospect that then turns off when you're married or you're not raising money for a film at that time. So I can't, it's not like there's any one place that I went to to find some were friends of friends, some, some I just met at events. I I was playing the women in film angle pretty strongly at that point. So I think so some of them I met in women's organizations. They were in other industries. And I, I managed to sort of sell them on the idea that women's Voice getting women's voices out were important, and that funding was the only way to do that. So a lot of our investors came through that route. I have to say, so we raised by by the time we got to production, which was about three years after I'd written the first draft, we only had enough money to get through production, and we made the decision to to go anyway because it just like we had this cast that we'd assembled, we'd had to push once already, and it just felt like this we'd sort of reached that point where it was either going to happen or it was never going to happen. And so we pulled the trigger and managed to get through production and then had to immediately turn around and start a crowdfunding campaign, which was horrible. We started a crowdfunding campaign like a week and a half after ending production, which I would not recommend to anybody. And we raised $35,000 that way. And then in a kind of amazing Hail Mary, that was when my TED Talk went viral that October. And this magical thing happened where people started writing to me through the internet saying, I believe in what you're saying about women in film, do you have anything I can invest in? I was like, yes, I do. So we actually raised about 100000 in a week and a half when that happened, which well, was Talk insane. about statistics. I mean, think yeah. of the
0: 50000 in a year and a half now. When yeah. you were fundraising in pre-production or in development, were you attaching actors in and then fundraise, like, can you talk about the timeline of attach- yeah. cast attachments and the yep. fundraising? So we
2: raised 50000 in development investment money. That was, I, I took a piece of that for script fees so that I could continue living and working on the project. Um, we hired our lawyer, we hired our accountant, and we hired a casting director, Judy Henderson, with that money. And then, so then we began putting out offers to actors. So I think that we hired her. I think in August the year before we ended up shoot, we shot in August. So I think we sh- we hired her in August of the the prior year, and then we began putting out offers all that fall. And of course, simultaneous to this, we continued to sort of groom investors and try to get investors, but we didn't get any investments. I don't think during that period. And then in December, Annie Golden signed on to play one of the roles. And that was definitely a big linchpin. And quickly after that, Naomi Grossman signed on to do one of the other roles. And then I think two months after that, Christian Colson signed on to play the main guy part. And that getting him was the thing that tipped a lot of investors who had been on the fence over, for sure. There were a lot of people who were sort of like, well, yes, we like this, but I don't know. And then when we went to them and we said, okay, we have him, they were like, okay, we'll, we'll invest.
1: Interesting. Wow. So the the star power does make a difference.
2: I think it does to investors. And and I think we were really smart, if I may say so, about how we did this with actors, because we knew that we couldn't get an A or even B list actor with budget. So the way we constructed our casting strategy was that we looked at what the audience for the film was going to be and what the demographics for that were going to be and then tried to find corollary popular shows or or films that had the same audience. We were on the hunt for a long time for a Harry Potter actor because we figured like that's exactly who our audience is. And so we were super excited to get Christian who played Tom Riddle in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets and we went after Naomi Grossman because of American Horror Story, which is like, you know, grounded fantasy. And we went after Annie Golden because of Orange is the New Black, which is sort of like edgy, feminist, funny content. So we, we really tried to, to be smart about getting people who weren't household names but would be known to the people that we needed to come see this movie specifically.
0: So we're in 2019 and we're in this phase of theatrical distribution where we're not really sure if people like going to the movies, if they don't <laughs> like going to the movies. Movie Pass was successful, but then it failed. Like everything's very chaotic in that yeah. sphere. What inspired you to do your own eventized theatrical tour? And Alric, am I allowed to ask this question now? Because
2: you know, it's what I really want to ask about.
1: Yeah, of
0: Okay.
2: <laughs> so we so originally our plan was to go down a traditional distribution route and our th- what we believed at the time was that because we had a more marketable film because we now had actors who were known at least within specific circles because we had this really smart marketing plan that we would be able to break into the next tier of distribution companies which we believed would then result in actual financial results and so we we started going down that path and we just, so so I think this was in about September of last year, and we started the sales agent conversations, we started the distributor conversations, and we just kept ha- having these conversations where they'd be like, we love this film so much. Five years ago, there would have been a bidding war over this film, and we have literally no idea how to sell this film right now. It just, it, like, we could feel the despondency wafting off of them in the sense of they were just like, we don't know what works anymore. We don't know, (laughs) but we can't, we're not doing this movie. And we had a couple people who wanted it that we weren't that excited about. And we just, by November, Sarah and I were just having more and more the conversation of like, this is not. This does not feel good, and it.
1: And, and what what made you not excited about the the distributors who wanted it was it because they weren't offering any actual money or was it because you didn't like the other movies that they released? Like, what was they the reason? Weren't, they
2: weren't offering any actual money. It didn't seem like the films that they'd wrapped in the past had really broken through, and or they just seemed very shady. Like it just there wasn't. It didn't feel like a good. None of them felt like a strong choice. And so, and and I had had this this experience with Imagine and I'm Beautiful with a distributor that I did like, and Sarah Wharton, my producing partner, had had a very similar experience with her past films, and it just seemed like when we actually sat down and thought of it, we were, our filmmaker friends who got distribution deals were actually not getting very much money back at the end of it. Like it it sounded exciting and it sort of elevated their status, but they weren't actually getting returns. Right. So then in November, I literally had a dream that we were in an RV driving around the country on something called the joyful vampire tour of America. And I called Sarah the next day and I was like, okay, so maybe this is insane, but what if we just rented an RV and took the film around to the audience that we know was there. And she said, yes, and we should put things on it. So then oh, wow. we spent about a month having conversations with a lot of people about this idea to try to sort of gauge if we were actually just throwing our careers off a cliff here and we talked to distributors, we talked to other producers, we talked to f- other filmmakers. And and basically, with a couple exceptions, the response was, well, nothing else is working, you may as well try this. And so then we we made the decision in January to go for this and the tour began May 5th. And, and basically, the thought was, okay, if if what people are saying is that it's really hard to get people to leave their houses now to watch movies, because why should they? Because they have Netflix on their couch. We have to give them something else. We have to give them something extra that they can't get at home. So our thought was, A, we'll invite them to come in costume because it's a vampire movie. And B, the filmmaker, I was going to be at all of the screenings. So there would always be a and a There would always be a chance to meet the filmmaker, which that piece proved to be a bigger deal than we thought it would because – in New York and LA, if you can find a screening without the filmmaker in attendance, it's kind of a miracle. But in Wichita, Kansas, or in Vicksburg, Mississippi, that's a really big deal. Like I was the first filmmaker a lot of people had met. And then we decided that we, that we needed some kind of event component so that what we were offering people was really a night out. And so we, we came up with this concept of the Joyful Vampire Balls. So after almost every screening, we had um, a Joyful Vampire Ball party that's sort of like part costume party, part community event and mainly sort of like a space to explore your inner weirdo in a safe setting with strangers.
1: Wow. That sounds amazing. So some, some numbers, how many screenings did you do on this tour and did it work? Did you actually make some money back uh, on your budget?
2: So we did 51 screenings in 40 city in 90 days.
1: Oh my gosh. And this is all in a row
2: that shit. Yes.
1: Wow. Dear lord.
2: <laughs> we nearly died. Give yourself more days off if you do this. But yes, it worked and it worked. It's it's completely changed how I'm thinking about everything in the future with respect to releasing films because what we discovered is yes, it is definitely more difficult to get people out of their homes to come do anything. I think I think technology has like sucked us all inside. But when people get there and you give them even the most basic opportunity to have a meaningful interaction with strangers in a room, people would have borderline religious experiences. Like people would come up to me all the time and say, this is the first time I've had a meaningful human interaction in months. Like they were so happy. People were crying. People like were having deep conversations with strangers into the night, like it, it restored my faith in people. It reminded me why we tell stories, why they matter. And it, and like, it definitely reinforced that we have to get stories to the middle of the country and not just Marvel movies. Well, and I'm
0: sure a lot of that had to do with how great, you know, the quality of the film, but also the subject matter of the film, the audience of the film was it aimed towards people who maybe were specifically stuck inside or a little bit more reclusive? Yeah, that's right.
2: That's right. But I, but I think in general, like our phones, like just every moment that in the past you, you had this brief opening to like meet somebody or have a conversation with somebody new. Now we were on our phones And the second we feel uncomfortable, the second we feel bored, the second we reach for our phones and open them, and it closes off that possibility of a human connection. And so just the simple thing of giving people a space and 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 a simple framework to have those interactions was incredibly profound. And people came out. Two girls drove 30 hours from Michigan to one of the, s- round trip to one of the screenings because Christian Colson posted about it on Instagram. Oh Another g- woman drove four hours b- after seeing a Facebook ad for the film. S- most of the audiences were in costume. I just did the math. I think we averaged 45 tickets sold per screening, which, considering that we were marketing 51 screenings in 90 days with a marketing team of essentially one and a half people is I think pretty impressive.
1: And what would you charge for this? Was it just the regular cost of a movie, like $10? Or did you charge more because it's like a ball and everything? So
2: we were, we were a little bit hamstrung by the the venues on this most of the time. Because we were a lot of the theaters had never done anything like this before, they were a little suspicious of it and would only let us sell tickets for the cost of what their normal movie price was. So there were places that it was like $7 or $10. But any place that we could control it, we charged 20 and you released digitally at
0: the same time can you talk did. a little bit about whether you would do that again well whether that cannibalized theatrical sales whether that you know whether that helped or or which one
2: was more profitable so we still don't so so we released on Amazon iTunes and Google Play in terms of traditional platforms and then we also released on Seed and Spark on their streaming platform. Oh,
1: I want to hear about this. Yes. And I haven't talked to anyone who's released on okay. CBS Spark before.
2: So the, the horrible thing is that we still don't have our Amazon, iTunes, or Google Play numbers, which is what? so not crazy. E- not even iTunes? No, we have iTunes S- daily estimates. Estimates. I have got, no idea yeah, we don't what it. means. Because oh. what are they estimating? They literally have the numbers <laughs> the second they come in. I don't... Anyway, so...
1: Well, the, but the Amazon, don't you get Amazon numbers at monthly no. or...
2: Mm -mm. Not through Quiver. You get them every four to six months, which is a whole other conversation because it makes it impossible to market Effectively, but anyway, so we we don't have those numbers. I and would also say a whole another that- conversation. But so glad you did. You didn't do
0: um, disturber. Now that we've learned all about no but I'd be curious kidding. about your quiver experience. Yes. So
1: <laughs> what's disturbers? This in one sentence, Liz. What's the disturber thing? Because I haven't heard about this. Oh,
0: they're bankrupt. I mean, that's the rumor. Oh, really? Yeah, and like all these filmmakers are not getting. Um, their payments that they're owed because they're, they've are oh, wow. um, essentially, what is it called? They've down downsized and they don't have the infrastructure to handle customer service or to uh, send wow. their revenue reports or I don't even know if they have the money. Sorry, yes. this is like a completely, this is no, actually no, no, tomorrow's conversation.
2: Oh. <laughs> so. Yeah. so far, our experience with Quiver has been good, except that we also haven't gotten any numbers or any money yet. So, that sort of TBD. But our experience has been positive thus far. Good. But, so we don't know. And and this, our, we knew that we couldn't come anything close to recouping the film physically on the tour because there just weren't enough seats. And we were selling merchandise also, but, like, there's just, there was a cap to how much we could make from the tour itself. And so our hypothesis was that we would use the tour to drive digital sales and that's where the big money would come from. And I, my suspicion at that point is that that was wrong because I think what we learned ah. is that people are just simply unwilling to pay on a one-off basis for movies anymore at any kind of scale. Inter-
1: interesting.
2: I think, I think TVOT is, is effectively dead because I think Netflix has trained people that they should expect great content for free or what feels like free because it's there. It comes off their it's credit card. It's a It's a
1: service. Yeah. So
2: are you thinking theatricals
0: actually actually going to be more – the numbers are going to be higher on your theatrical experience than on Von? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. That's amazing. Because, that
2: would yeah. be like a great circular right. kind of like evolution. So funny, right? <laughs> yes. no, my takeaway from this tour is that we have been th- thinking – like everyone's been saying you have to worry only about online, in-person doesn't work anymore. My thesis now is – is that for independent films it is exactly the opposite because we can offer experiences that the studios can't, can't and that's the market opportunity. Yeah, I agree.
1: Do you can you share your final tour numbers with us or sure. do you want to just give us okay.
2: Yep, so I think these aren't going to be exact because I don't have them exactly in front of me, but I think we made about we'll have made about 35,000 from the tour itself between merchandise wow. and ticket sales. Which, again, I just like to remind you that through a distributor, my first film made
1: $5,000. Right. No, that's a good comparison. Yeah.
2: And then I, I we, we've so far made an additional 5500 on Seed&Spark. And oh, wow. then we don't know about and, the other.
1: And how many views is that through Seed&Spark that got you 5500 Okay.
2: So Seed&Spark right now, if you are exclusive on their platform, is paying around $0.40 cents per minute watched, which is bananas.
1: Yeah. Compared to what is? Banana's it good
2: because compared to I mean, yeah. like Amazon yeah, yeah. for yeah. us. Fantastic. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how doing it, but I'm happy to be a beneficiary. <laughs> so let's see. So, so I'm doing the math quickly here. So I think, so that's about 220 views.
1: Wow. And that, that's, that's a lot of money for that. That's a lot few of money. A, a, yeah. a views for sure. So We
2: actually made more money. Well, we still do. We're still on Seed&Spark. We make more money when somebody watches the film on Seed&Spark than even if they bought a ticket. I think the only thing we made more on was a DVD. No, not even that. No, we made the most money if somebody watched it on Seed&Spark. Wow. So Ulrich and I had a conversation months
0: ago where I just kept saying over and over again, filmmakers are not making any money. They're not making their money back. They're not recouping. yeah. I mean, hearing that you made a $500,000 film, that so far you've pulled in about $40,000, which is nothing to sniff at, that's really quite yep, great. Yep. Do you see a world where you will eventually recoup? I mean, obviously, there's like second windows and there's like a lot of revenue yeah. streams that you haven't exploited yet, but I'd love to hear what you think is going to happen.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I th- so I think w- what the next plan is and what I'm very interested to see how it will play out is that what we now have is cold, hard data that when people want to hear about this movie, they want to watch it. Um, We have click-through numbers from Facebook ads. We have trailer views from YouTube. We have all of this data that filmmakers normally don't have when they're negotiating these deals. So what I'm very interested to see is, will that mean that we can make better ancillary deals? Like, will they be willing to assess that data and, and look at it in an even plane than, say, getting into Sundance or whatever. Because my dream is that they will. Because my dream is always to remove the gatekeepers, right? Like, what I want is a world in which filmmakers can choose themselves, do the work, and then people will see that and give them good deals because they have done that and demonstrated their audience rather than this sort of weird mystical system that we have right now. But I don't know. I mean, there's definitely a world in which we never come close to recouping. I think there's a world in which... We recoup, like, let's say the film never goes viral; it never sort of hits an inflection point in terms of audience. I think there's still a world in which we squeak out recoupment or something close to it over maybe five to ten years.
1: W- what about foreign sales? Are you yeah? Going that's that's after- definitely
2: one of the next things we're going after.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah, because I think you probably make some money there for sure. At least.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think we can cobble together foreign sales. We can do airline deals. Uh, hopefully, um, TV deals. I'm, we're going to try to now do some kind of deal with a streaming platform, but I just don't know what those numbers are going to add up to.
1: And how long has your film been out in the world online, you know, on, you know, TV. Since TV-OB? May 7th. I, I'm going to, you know, I don't know when you're going to get your numbers, but my guess is that your online numbers are probably going to be somewhere around, and maybe this is too much, but like $25,000, 40000 I think of, that's
2: high. That's I mean, really high. <laughs> I think, uh, you're, yeah, I think really? it's going to be less than that. Yeah. Really?
1: Even even though you hit all these different markets, you know? Because like, people in all those markets must be watching it after their events, right? Or you
0: don't yeah, think so? Yeah, but
2: but here's the thing is people kept saying like the thing we heard over and over again is, Oh my God, I want to see this movie so badly. I can't wait till it's on Netflix. Right.
0: They have no idea how Jeez. hard that
2: is, which is so funny. They think it's like, Oh, it's just going to be on Netflix. It, that, right, that's the thing that's going to happen. And also the problem is that they don't understand how little money we make on that, that when they actually take out their wallets and pay two ninety that is a better outcome for us than when they wait. Yeah. Just, I guess my big question is like, does it matter?
0: I mean, like, does it matter if you don't recoup? Does it yeah. ma- what. I mean, obviously, <laughs> obviously everyone wants money, but yeah. like, are you happy you did your release this way? Are
2: you happy you made the film this way? A hundred percent. I mean, I, A, I think we made more money than we would have if we'd gotten a distribution deal at the tier that we probably could have gotten a distribution deal given the scale of the film. I'm I'm almost certain we've made more money than we would have. And also, like, we touched people. <laughs> we moved people. We we had really important conversations. I mean, ever since we did this, I've had this vision of what if we could get an Oregon trail of filmmakers going through the country with their movies in this way. I had interactions with people in the middle of the country where it was like, we're basically two aliens. Talking to each other. Like, we do not understand. Like, you do not feel seen by me, and I don't understand you, and you don't understand me. And then through the course of the evening, we did understand each other. And I just feel like if you could, if we could do this, it would change the country. To. On both sides, like filmmakers would start telling more stories about not New York and Los Angeles and and the middle of the country would feel seen in a different way. And our minds would be expanded and their minds would be expanded. And like, I think we could find our way back to each other through film tours.
0: Well, I mean, you inspired me, both you and the in reality ladies have inspired me to book my own theatrical as well. And like, it's so fantastic to hear that decision validated by the data.
2: Yeah. And, and I, and I think to your point, like, does it, I, you know, I think there is a serious question that we have to ask ourselves about how much recruitment should financial recruitment should be the most important metric. I was talking to a filmmaker, an indie filmmaker from the 80s, who was like, in the 80s, we didn't worry about it. We just saw it like indie film was art. And all we cared about was the art and moving people and whatever. And I was like, it made me realize what actually a recent idea it is that indie film is supposed to make money,
1: well, it's just like, you know, the whole basic idea of like if if you're going to raise money again, like, you want to be able to tell your investors that you return, yeah, to return on the investment for the last investors, yeah. you know,
2: I mean, and and don't get me wrong. I would really like to make these people's money back. like that is definitely an important goal that remains in our minds. But I also can't say that I feel like it's a failure if we didn't, I think we did something really important either way.
1: And I guess my, another question I has think just been thinking about is like, you made a movie for $80,000 then you wouldn't made a movie for $500,000. Like, do you feel like making this movie for $500,000 was the right way to make the movie or will your next movie be a lower budget? So it's going to be easier to recoup. Like, yeah. like how do you feel? I mean, uh-
2: Believe me, I've been having this conversation with myself a lot because I do think it it is possibly the truth that in this world, in this moment, you can only recoup if you make it a film for like $100,000 or or like gazillions of dollars.
0: And it has, you know, an IP and a million dollar marketing.
2: Right, right, right. And
1: a a machine behind it. it, Totally.
2: But I'm not, I'm not, I'm not confident that there's a model in between. But I also, money matters and being able to pay ourselves matters. And like, you know, my next film, which I'd written before the tour, uh, takes place in a castle <laughs> in Massachusetts. And like there's, to to shoot in that castle as a its own line item is going to cost $100,000. And so like- Jeez. There, there is an, a lower budget version of that movie, but it would also be really nice to make it for like between half a million and a million again.
1: Right. Do you feel like it's our responsibility as filmmakers to, if we're going to make that movie for half a million to a million, that we should know how we're going to make our own budget back? Or do you feel like like this whole thing where maybe it isn't important that we make the budget back, that the only thing that matters is making the best movie possible, and that's enough as long as you can find the support?
2: Well, I think it's whatever you can talk investors into, right? Because so Jack Lechner, one of the most important lessons he ever taught me was to begin every investor conversation with the statement. And I mean, once you get to the serious investor conversation, (laughs) not like the first time you meet them. If... Film is among the riskiest investments on planet Earth. If you are not a hundred percent comfortable losing all of your money on this project, we should not continue this conversation.
0: Oh, I love it. I love it. It sounds so confident.
2: It it is. And and I have done that ever since. And it's effective not only because A, they instantly trust you because it's the last thing they ever expect you to open the meeting with. Two, it's true. And if and they can't really get angry. F- with you later for losing their money if you do, because you literally, that was the first thing you told them. And also what I found is it actually often puts them on their back foot so much that they actually then begin trying to convince you why they're comfortable losing their money, which is a great place to start an investor meeting. So I I think it's just whatever you can talk people into. And I don't know. So you don't,
1: so you don't really feel like it's our responsibility as independent filmmakers to be people who you know, we're more than just a writer or a producer or a director or an actor. Like we also have to be, you don't think we also have to be these marketing geniuses or do you think that's really important?
2: No. Well, I, th- I think that's really important if you ever want people to see your movie. I mean, I think the marketing question is separate from
1: the, recruitment it's connected question. But separate
2: from the, the financial question. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm a strong right. believer in building your own machine and in not waiting for the gatekeepers and not in not throwing your film into the insane lottery system that exists right now. I th- So I, I'm a hundred percent of the opinion that you, yes, you have to be a marketer, assuming you care that anybody ever sees your movie, but I'm just, I'm, I'm sort of mid thought process on whether or not we should continue down the path of, of offering indie films as investment vehicles or whether they should really become sort of nonprofit art ventures. right, right. And,
1: Like an art piece, right?
2: But a note
0: on sustainability, like my, Naomi, you and I, I'm still in your Imagine I'm Beautiful stage where I'm just trying to right. reduce overhead and increase revenue. But you took the opportunity to give yourself a money out of the budget yeah. for a sustainable lifestyle. And I think whether you put it in the budget and then maybe you don't recoup and you don't profit, or you're able to pay yourself out of the back end and you do everything possible, you know, beg, borrow, and steal in order right. to profit. Right? Um, there are different means to sustainability. Yes, but yes. I do think it's it is a lot to put on ourselves. The idea of like us all having to carry the banner for everyone else and prove that this film thing is a profitable lifestyle. When I just I. I also I also have my doubts.
2: But but I think right. So my goal is is some kind of sustainable ecosystem. And to what that means to me is, is that people get paid, and not paid a lot. I mean, you know, you're not going to get paid actually a reasonable hourly wage for the time you put in but like something so that we're, the you know, something.
1: Right. Uh, here's a question for you, Naomi. So Having raised money for two of your two features, yeah. and I, you know, you have a third. You know, I imagine you're trying to get made. Do you feel like that's just going to be the way that you make films? Is that you are always going to be the one going out to uh, fundraise your films, or do you see a future where eventually someone's going to either hire you to direct one of your films or uh, bring in the money for
0: you, um, or produce, or act, or yeah, eat uh, all your lovely I, things you do?
2: I would be perfectly happy with this version of it. Like if I got to go on doing what I've been doing until I die, I feel like I would be super happy at the end of my life. I would be delighted to get hired to do, uh, to do films for paychecks uh, alongside that. I don't really expect anybody to come in and be the fundraiser at any point. I mean, I guess that would be nice, but.
1: Or the financier or something where like, I mean, yeah, you, I mean you know, that would be great. You meet great. a production company and they're like, Oh my gosh, Naomi, we love your sure, films. Like would, you're writing and you're acting, you're producing. I, we want you to partner with us, and we'll take care of the funds. Yeah, you just do the creative stuff. Like you just don't do you feel like that's realistic or unrealistic?
2: I think it could happen, but i but I think what you, the the critical thing though, is that every time you give up con, a piece of control, which includes, I mean, whoever brings in the money ultimately controls the project. That's just how right. it works. And so I think if you found absolutely the right partner, that would be great. But I also really like being able to control the process and the people I work with and and build the playground I want to play on, you know, like, and that happens because I raise the money. So, and I, and I don't even hate it that much anymore. Like, I really hated it at the beginning and now I think it's kind of fun. I really do. Yeah, because you're really good at it. <laughs> like, that's but but I was not at the beginning and that's critical. Like so many people come to me and they're like, well, I'm just not a good fundraiser. Like nobody's a good fundraiser at the beginning. That's not a thing, but like it is a muscle that you can strengthen.
1: Well, I think it's great to hear that you're prepared to keep on doing this because I think that's like, to me, that's the only way that you can really, you know, like, ensure that you're going to have a career doing this is that if you're ready to do it the way that you've been doing it, you know, like I think a lot of filmmakers um, have this idea that they'll do their first feature. They'll, you know, bootstrap it, they'll make it happen. They'll get it going. And then, they'll be off, you know, to Hollywood land and someone will take care of them for the rest of their career. And I just think that's unrealistic expectation, you know, and I think as filmmakers, we need to be ready to just, you know, dig our hands into the mud and make it happen, you know, build the the castle however we can. Totally.
2: And I think, again, particularly if you're a woman or a person of color or a disabled person or an LGBTQ community member, like, you have you have to understand the degree to which the system is rigged against you and i don't say that to be discouraging i say that to be realistic and if you don't understand the mechanisms by which that is happening read my book <laughs> but it is it is intense and the problem with this moment is let's let's say the gatekeepers are sincere in their desire to fix this problem the way they are doing it is through a handful of diversity programs hiring this woman here there's just like Looking at that pipeline, there will never be a time in our lifetime times where we get to parody with that dribble through the pipeline. Like there just isn't. So I, the right. only way I see for massive progress there is on the indie film. Series side. And I think that, right. and that has to be about building it yourselves.
1: Yeah. And, I, and I, I feel like this is something I've said before on the podcast and I feel very passionately about is that, you know, as indie filmmakers, we're the ones who get to de- control the fate of our movie. And we're the ones who get to decide who we're going to cast in the lead roles, you know, and who we're going to have yeah. as the writers and the producers and the team members and everything. And so I think it's our responsibility to be inclusive because yeah. they're not doing it in Hollywood. Yep. I mean, there's a, there's this kind of like thing where you kind of think it's changing because you have like a couple outliers like, you know, Jordan Peele right. with his films and a couple other examples, but it really is just a very tiny drop in the humongous bucket. Right. So, for me, it's like, you know, I'm definitely going to cast, you know, non-white leads in all my films going forward just because I have the ability to do that. Yep. And, you know, I just feel like you know that's what I want to see as as an audience member, and I don't have anyone telling me that I can't do it. Right. Basically, absolutely. Although oddly, I do have some people telling me I shouldn't do it. But
2: right, because of the racist patriarchy. Like that is <laughs> <you guys>, it <laughs> right. is it is not it is not a myth.
1: It is real. Like like it's crazy. Like how much advice I've gotten from producers who, to tell me, oh, don't put a black lead in yeah. your film because it's not going to sell outside of domestic. Yeah. Like it's just not going to. And that's I just totally think that's true at all. I think it's just a come this sort of weird myth people have or like right. this idea that's like just been perpetrated throughout right you know which, the which, industry which
2: again demonstrates the breathtaking level of arrogance of our industry of the of the white men at the top of our industry because do you know what right. percentage of the world's population is white dudes
1: <laughs> right not large yeah anyways i think we should wrap this conversation up liz do you have any final questions
0: no i have a conference call <laughs> <laughs> okay, <cool. laughs>
1: Um, All right. Well, Naomi, where can people find your films? Where should they go if they want to learn more about you and watch your films and support you and all that good stuff?
2: Uh, So the best place to go is to my website, which is NaomiMcDougalJones.com. And from there, you can find the films, the book, and everything else in between.
0: Auric, if Naomi McDougal Jones was on the show today, 3 years later, what is the one question you'd ask her? So,
1: I'd probably ask her about what she's learned since she made her last feature because it's been it's been a little while, and what she would take from from the things she's learned over the last 3 years into making her next project because like she's been doing this, this, this whole thing with you. What was it called again? I can't remember.
0: The constellation incubator.
1: Yeah. The incubator. So she did that incubator. She worked with all these different filmmakers. She's got to have learned like so much during this time, you know, just like you have and. I'm just, you know, curious. Like, would she do it exactly the way that you're doing your feature? Would she, you know, take some of the lessons that you've taken and apply them in that same way, or would she do it in a different way? I think that's what I would ask her. Is like, what she, how she envisions her next feature looking from. Pre-production through release.
0: I talk to Naomi once a week uh, and we just wrote an article <laughs> together for Filmmaker Magazine and we're doing a webinar for Filmmaker Like We are like, she's someone that I engage with regularly. I have nothing that I would ask her now, just for what it's worth. I know you didn't ask me, <laughs> but like I think that was coming. I do know that she and I are working together on something called Story Made Films and that's how we're making our third features. Each of us are making our third feature this way, trying to really focus on process over the finish line and so maybe I would just ask her to talk about where she is and on her third feature which is called control room which is very similar to my sci-fi feature control group but Uh, whatever
1: (laughs) nice fun okay well I think we need to get right to it and talk do the you're the expert so Uh, here I'll just read it I'll take it up on this on this one so
0: oh I'll ask it because you asked the game oh okay okay, sure well explain what it is first yeah yeah You're the expert is a segment thanks to producer Eric Toms. It's our new, new, very exciting segment where Eric asks us a question that he thinks we'll be able to answer from an expert opinion point of view. And this week's question is a person, just a person, a person has decided to make their first short film. What are the first steps Alric, what are the first (laughs) steps to making your first short film?
1: The most important thing is to find the story you care about. Don't just make something because you want to make something, which is like what a lot of people do. It's not worth it. Even if it's you've never made anything before, it's probably not worth it to make something that you don't care about. Like you have to find something that really matters to you that has a connection to you as a person, you know? And then also is an entertaining story at the same time that, like, is, like, doesn't necessarily have to be the short version of the feature-length thing or whatever. Or if you want to be a show, you know, director, showrunner, or whatever, it doesn't have to be, like, a small version of the show you have your idea for. Whatever. It can be something that just explains the type of filmmaker you want to be, in five to 10 minutes, you know, or less even potentially. And it, it, that's what it should be. And it could be anything, could be any story, any whatever, but it just has to like relate back to you personally. And it has to be in the style that you want to make movies in, in the future. And I think if you do those things, you're going to have really big success. And then of course, finding the crew and the team and all that other stuff, like that's all important. But like before that even happens, you gotta find the story that, that really effing matters to you. And that's gonna do those things. Cause if you don't. You're wasting your time. Liz, what do you think? Yeah,
0: 100% agree. I think a lot of people say things like that there has to be a purpose for the short film. And I don't know if I 100% agree with that, but I do think it has to serve you in some way. So it doesn't have to be a proof of concept for your first feature. It doesn't have to be, you know, the exact genre that you want to make every film in for the rest of your life. But Because you're utilizing really, really valuable resources like time, energy, and money, you need to be thinking about if this is my first step, what's the second step? You don't have to think about the third step or the fourth step or the fifth step. You don't have to think about like the five features you wanna make 20 years from now. What is the second project and how will this first short film serve you to get to the second project? And maybe it's just that you really want more practice with moving camera or you want more than two actors in the short because you wanna learn how to work with Three loves and two booms, or you want to learn how to, you know, nail screen direction and eyelines, or whatever it is. Just think about what you want to work on. And then I would also say, as you figure out what the budget for your short film is, only work at a budget that you can afford like yourself. Like, if you can't afford a $20,000 short film and you don't have a plan for how you're going to finance that or fundraise for that, don't write a $20,000 short. And I understand it's a short film, so it's going to be very hard to understand how to make it cheaply. But I would just say, Alrick and I have tips for you. Don't use animals. Don't use stunts. (laughs) Don't use, like, really heavy special effects makeup, you know, like... If you have a location, make sure you can afford it. Because in LA, it's like base $1,000 a day. So just think about how much these things cost. And just one final thing is make it less than 10 minutes. Make it a less than 10 minute short.
1: Yes. Doing yourself a favor and everybody else in the world a favor if you make it under 10 minutes. I'd also add like, you know, I love what you said about trying to know what your second project is or like what the next step is after this. But I'd also think about, Where is it gonna live? Like who's gonna watch it and how are you gonna get it to those people? And like if the plan is film festivals, have a plan for the release right after the or during the film festivals. So like don't just I'll see what's gonna happen. Like know like what you wanna do with it because if you don't, you'll be like me and you'll have a movie that you shot in twenty nineteen that still hasn't been released yet. (laughs) So don't be like me. Don't do that. Make sure (laughs) there's a clear plan. And a clear direction of like where you want or how the movie's going to get out to people. Because the worst thing is making something that, you, that no one sees, you know, yeah. and you want to make sure that people see it. So if you guys have your own uh, suggestions for You're the Expert or the game that we play, you know, once a week on either the full episode or the short episode, you can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at com along with those suggestions. Or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes, which would be amazing. And finally, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Thanks so much to our editor, Jeff Breitman, for doing the editing. Thanks to our producer, Eric Tons, for being awesome. Thanks you all for listening. and We'll talk to you all next week.